Hello and welcome to the Steal My Name podcast. I'm your host, Bob Barrow. It's time for episode 13, and I know that this one is late. I apologize. You'd think with being off work, I, uh, <laughs> I'd have more time to get everything done, but just to be candid, I'm sure like a lot of you out there, this this whole social isolation thing and COVID th- shit, and it uh, let it get right on top of me last week. Wasn't wasn't taking care of myself, was uh, imbibing a little too much. And I found when I do that, that tends to kind of wash my my any uh, anxiety meds out of my system. So I got flustered and freaked out and got a nice little preview or a nice little reminder of how I used to live all the time. So <laughs> got my shit together here and come back strong and, and get down to the business that we're supposed to be getting about. So... Uh, <laughs> On top of everything terrible happening in the world right now, uh, last week we lost a true giant in the horror world. Uh, Stuart Gordon passed away, and Stuart Gordon is an or was one of the undisputed masters of horror in the true sense of the term. Up there, deservedly so, with creators like Wes Craven and John Carpenter, and. He has a George Romero, Toby Hooper, all those guys has a, a body of work that is just so wonderfully diverse and crazy that I thought it would be a complete shame. I know I'd promised the Dog Soldiers episode, but I thought it would be a complete shame to to not take some time to to celebrate this artist because he's I find for people outside of horror, his name isn't quite as well known compared to someone like John Carpenter or Wes Craven, who had a lot more mainstream success at different points of their career. Stuart Gordon never really enjoyed that huge mainstream success, but still just kept plugging away behind the scenes and making one fantastic, awesome movie after another. Now, his name will always be tied to H.P. Lovecraft. His H.P. Lovecraft adaptations are legendary, they're the best adaptations that have ever really been done of that work. The only one that even comes close is In the Mouth of Madness, and that's more really kind of a, a hodgepodge-style representation or adaptation than it is an actual story, whereas Stuart Gordon, his bread and butter for a lot of his career was making Lovecraft adaptations. So I've kind of, I'm going to break this discussion down into two separate parts. I'm going to talk about his Lovecraft work, and then I'm going to talk about some of the other films that he made. Now, he doesn't really have a dud in his filmography, but I decided specifically for this that I was only going to rewatch and review and talk about the films that I have in my collection. I there's ones that I love, like dolls that I don't have, and I know I could I could stream them places, there's places for me to watch them. But I thought I'd kind of go a little old school, a little little VHS peg in here and only do the ones that are in my collection. I know it seems weird and arbitrary, but I think when you're a collector, when you make a point of having as many films by filmmakers you can and you have a you know some time to celebrate them, you should kind of sit back and look and go, okay, do I have all of these films that I should have? Are there gaps in my collection? And there are definitely some gaps with Stuart Gordon's films that I movies that I don't have. Like I said, Dolls, Fortress. Um, I can't talk about Edmund or Stuck, his last two films, because honestly, I haven't seen them. 
but I wanted to go kind of analog old school, like I said, analog pagan, and just celebrate him with uh, with the movies that I have on my shelf and that the joy of having his films on my shelf. So like I said, we're going to start with Lovecraft, and that means we go right back to the beginning and talk about the immortal Reanimator. So from 1985, Reanimator. After an odd new medical student arrives on campus, a dedicated local and his girlfriend become involved in bizarre experiments centering around the reanimation of dead tissue. Yep, that works. So this film is, in terms of Lovecraft, is adapted from a series of stories that he wrote for a magazine called Herbert West Reanimator. And probably some of his more over-the-top wild stories that he wrote that was kind of the the modus operandi of that magazine that he was working for, where it, it can't be too over the top, it can't be too graphic, and that's really what what the the original Lovecraft stories are. They're definitely worth reading, so do check them out. But Reanimator is a film. It's one of those legendary horror movies that's exactly what you think it is. It's a, it's almost mythical in its status and. Coming from the VHS days, my introduction to it was it was pre-DVD. So my first memory of this movie was actually looking at the case for it in the in video ninety nine. And I've talked about this before, and I'm sure I'll talk about it again. But that was such an informative time for me because you know five six years old, looking at these cases, and your your mind is completely blown by what you're seeing because you you know you're in a store where it's just movies. These things aren't real, but you're still young enough that you look at them and go, this is, it, it, they almost felt dangerous to be looking at, to be picking up that these, it, it's a, it's a sensation that I've tried to put into words before and I get it. I can feel it, but I have a very hard time articulating it. And I get it whenever I, especially come in contact with any case that was part of that video 99 wall that I was looking at as a kid and I remember looking at the case of this, I think it was the R-rated version, the black case, and seeing Jeffrey Combs there, no idea who this person is, and this he's got a head on this desk, and looking at it while knowing it's just a movie, a part of my brain was so overwhelmingly convinced that it was real, that what I was looking at was something too horrible to actually be able to process in any kind of logical way. And then reading about it in online especially it was one of those very hard to find films there was a website called esplatter.com that i used to go to a lot when i first started going online like dial up days and reading reviews and learning about films and they had a their review section boasted they had 666 horror reviews probably more so but i used to read those endlessly just scroll through them over and over again and for entries like reanimator they would obviously gush about the film but then it would end with a well good luck finding it you know because it was one of those tapes that was rare even when they first came out especially trying to find the unrated copies of it so that scarcity of being able to find it and people's, you know, I dare you, go out and try and find a copy. It, it created more of this sense of of anticipation and cult around the film. And it's something I've talked about before. I talked about that uh, in some previous episodes. And there there are movies like that that are rare, even, even today in the DVD era, that 
you know, while they may have some some good moments or some famous set pieces or some notoriously bad acting, but there are only a handful of movies that can live up to that hype, even today. And Reanimator is one of those few films that front to back, it's everything, like I said, it's everything that you think it is. So all this you know, reading about it and websites being excited about it and books I was buying talking about it. By the time I finally got a copy, I was just, I was so ready for this film. I was so excited. And I talked about the Phantasm episode, how I got my first copy of the R-rated version of it. The, it's funny, all my copies, so many of my reanimator stories all revolve around the the girl I dated in high school, Jen Lewis, how I got my first unrated copy of it. We were at a video store that's closed now. It's a cheese shop now called Charlotte Video. And they had a great horror section. And it was just after the time I got the R-rated version. I'm puttering around in their their horror section. They kind of let their tapes you know, just go wild. They weren't really taking much care of that section anymore. They were just kind of stacked haphazardly. And I found, I saw that blue case and any VHS collector will know what it's like to see a tape like that. You know, the, the blue reanimator box, it was a, it was a famous tape, you know, like you could spot it at 30 yards, but holy shit, it's that. And it was kind of like a, you know, a needle in a haystack moment where you were just like, oh, that's what it felt like. And so I, I picked it up and they also had the uh, the lightning video unrated uh, Toxic Avenger on VHS. And I talked about in the Phantasm episode as well, trying to buy tapes off of video store shelves. So as was our practice at this time, I kind of hid in the back and I sent Jen up with these tapes. And she kind of works her magic on it on the guys at the counter. And I think they sold me both tapes for like $10 and I'm just over the moon. And then Synapse, I think released the first big DVD of it. The two, the two DVD version in the green case that had both the R rated and unrated versions, an incredible cast commentary. It's one of the funniest commentaries I've ever heard. And it was actually Jed went and I gave her money during uh, school. She had a free period and she went to the future shop when future shop would still carry stuff like that and bought that. So I, I had such a, a long wind up to this movie. And, and like I said, it absolutely lives up to all the hype from the very first moment of the film it hits hard and it doesn't let you go. It takes a lot of liberties with the source material. I think I should say that right off the bat. It's not really the stories as written. And that's something that Stuart Gordon did so well with his Lovecraft adaptations is he, for the most part, he was never slavish to the material. Uh, obviously, there's an updating in time period. You know, these took place in the 80s. All of the adaptations are set in the time that, you know, that he made the movies in. But it's also almost in that sense of how the new It, where it worked and where it didn't, is take what works from the stories, keep the the overall spirit 
of the piece intact and then don't be afraid to run in another direction with it to make it a new and coherent story. And that's, you know, like I said, updating the setting. Uh, there's an odd sense of by starting it in Europe, quote unquote, in Switzerland, it lends it an odd sense of authority uh, because it feels like you're watching almost kind of a classy, a classy picture. People are speaking other languages. It's like, oh, I'm seeing something. It's a little different than, you know, just starting with somebody running around in the woods or or things like that. It's it's what separates the real masters of horror from other guys that were just kind of out there just making the movie they were out to make. This is a a film, even though it's written as a team, made as a team, it's a film that had a very specific vision that it was setting out to execute. And that's what I want to focus on here, especially with the first movie, especially with Reanimator. While it is notorious in a lot of ways because of its its gore and its violence, and it and it does, it is right over the top. It doesn't pull any punches. And it has some very famous scenes, you know, like the head giving head and, you know, the cat and all that stuff. And I'll, I'll get into that. But the film works and is a classic from the first moment it premiered up until today and will always be a classic. Because, like I said, it's executed by somebody with a very specific vision intact to make a cohesive film all the way through. And... Stuart Gordon, he was in his late 30s when he decided to do this. Most people know his background was in theater. He started the Organic Theater Company in Chicago and spent 15 years directing plays and staging productions. So he was already very immersed in what it took to tell a complete story, how to get an audience engaged, keep them involved, how to great get excellent performances out of your cast and how integral that is. And all the gore and silliness and the the wacky tone of the film aside, what makes the, this film work and I think what separates it from, you know, a lot of its ilk is is the cast. You you can't just say oh Reanimator is a great movie because or it's a horror classic because it's gory there or it's or it's funny or it's over the top it i think it's the cast centrally that roots that or gives it a sense of grounding in in a reality even though it's a very strange reality and it's that theater background that you can see coming up over and over again in this film that makes it work the the central casting the three main actors of Jeffrey Gore or Jeffrey Combs as Herbert West, Bruce Abbott as Dan Kane, and Barbara Crampton as as Megan. Without that core group, it doesn't work. And I think it would be we'd be remiss to not talk about how wonderful it all worked together. Because obviously, people think about Reanimator from a casting perspective. You think about Jeffrey Combs because he he dominates every scene he's in in this movie, but. There's a skill of performance going on and a and a skill with the actors that's going on that you don't see in a lot of other films. There are horror films, especially, especially a first feature. You know, there's there's first features that have 
a couple of strong performances. But in a lot of cases, it's there's there's an, an innocence or a, a certain silliness about some of the performances that make a lot of these films endearing. You know, I the first Evil Dead, for example. Those are some goofy performances, you know, raw amateur performances from a lot of people. But it's the overall energy of that film that makes it work. Even like the first Halloween has some loose performances. The Texas Chainsaw Massacre, Night of the Living Dead. Here, though... Not saying this film is better than any of those movies, but here though, there isn't a weak performance in the bunch. You could have taken this cast and made a, a normal straight ahead drama, and it would you would still be left with a great film. And I think that's a lot of the staying power. You know, Jeffrey Combs was built to play Herbert West. It is it's his signature role in, you know, that's what he'll be remembered for. Now, obviously I love anything that he's in. He was brilliant in the Frighteners. He was incredible on his run on Deep Space Nine, where he played three different characters, but he'll be remembered as Wayun specifically, the Vorta. But he's so perfect here, and he steals, like I said, every scene that he's in. You know, Bruce Abbott as Dan Kane, he manages all at once to be the very traditional chiseled jaw, you know, hero that you see in so many horror movies, but carries an incredible sensitivity with him throughout the whole thing. Because how is he first presented? And the same with with Barbara Crampton, one of those rare screen queens that can actually act you know, she's an excellent actress when she's given the material to actually work with. And that theater background doesn't just come into play with how well he directed these people and had rehearsal time and stuff. But just look at the the introduction of these characters. You know, we we know everything we need to know about them in the very first scenes that each of them are in, you know, Herbert in the opening scene being so maniacal with the doctor that he's given the overdose of the reagent to. And, you know, he's nervous and jittery and and dedicated to his work to the point of lawlessness and immorality. The first time we see Dan Kane, he's refusing to give up on a patient who's obviously dead on his table and his his idealism is just pushing him past the point of of reasonability where he'll stop you know and then the first time we see Barbara Crampton she just kind of floats into the scene and is just kind of this angel amongst all this chaos but the moment you see her you know instantaneously that she's this warm compassionate presence. Now, obviously they, they cut to a sex scene, which is pretty funny how they handle that, but it's, it's all there and it's all there very quickly. The first time we see David Gale as Dr. Hill, he has such a powerful throwback presence to, you know, a different era. Like this guy could have traded scenes with Vincent Price and Peter Cushing and had that kind of old school horror authority. Just like a, just, even just an old school, I hate to say this, but make, I hope this sounds right. That kind of old school male authority. You know, I had a principal in public school at Autonomy Valley, uh, Mr. Sutherland, who reminds me a lot of David Gale in this movie because he was humongous. At least to us as kids, he was probably 6'2", 6'3", 
So when you're seven years old, someone that's six two, six three is huge, and he had that booming voice and that you know gray hair and this sense of immovable authority. And now obviously it all goes horribly wrong with with David Gale and his character with Doctor Hill, but they all seem like small details when taken on their own. But it's something that only a director who is so rooted in actors would be able to get across because I've, I I grew up doing theater. I, I know just how important that is. And even just in making my own films that if you don't have the right actors, you can only pad so much. And especially if you're asking the audience to come with you in such a fucking wackadoo funhouse ride, you have to be able to ground them as you're going. And that's something that only I, I would say an adult could do because this this does feel like a film made by an adult in the way that something like Dawn of the Dead or Day of the Dead feels like they were made by adults, you know, or The Thing, things like that, right? If I hope this is coming across correctly because they're incredibly confident films and they're in- incredibly consistent films. They don't let up on what they're doing, whether it's tonally or visually, et cetera, the whole time. Anyway, hopefully I haven't got myself too turned around there. But I can't say enough of this importance of this theatrical background, because that comes into play in other areas. The, the visual style, it's not a flashy film in terms of camera. Uh, Stuart Gordon's talked in the, he's spoken in the past frequently about his collaboration with Mac Albert, the, he was kind of the in-house director of photography for Empire Pictures and how he worked with Gordon to kind of smooth out this visual approach. But there's still a lot of theatricality in the style of the film. There's lots of wide shots, lots of group shots, There's lots of just static shots or long tracking shots. It's like you're shooting a stage. And I think by doing that, because he's so, you know, it's not a film like The First Evil Dead, where it's, you know, Sam Raimi was very ambitious from a visual perspective. He was a visual storyteller from a filmmaking perspective. But here, it's it's just kind of allowed to play out. And that lets us absorb the performances better, but it also really increases the one-two punch of the gore gags and the silliness. Because that's the other theatrical background thing here that comes with it. Stuart Gordon's theater career was, he was known for making somewhat scandalous projects. He would take risks on stuff. There would be lots of violence or sex or experimental theater he was big on. So here, it's that attitude of more is probably not enough. You know, you can never go too far. If you're going to do something, just fucking do it. Don't, you know, pussyfoot around. Don't waste time. If you're going to make a horror comedy about corpses and mad scientists, go nuts. You know, if you're you're dealing with a setting with this at Miskatonic University with the hospital and the morgue and all that, where there, it's so ripe to just get gross and sticky and over the top. And 
he goes for it with such a genuine sense of abandon where there's there's no punches pulled there's no quarter given it's when it goes off it's wall to wall and that's another thing i'd spoken before about the the liberties he took with the material and there's a a level of the the violence and the sex that's presented in in this adaptation and as well in some of his other Lovecraft adaptations, they are at odds with, with Lovecraft himself. His stories generally dealt with nothing to do with sex. Now you can do a lot of digging in as to his issues with women and what the Cthulhu monster represented in the tentacles and all that kind of stuff. But, but they weren't, they also weren't gory horror stories there's some description that you could consider to be grotesque in some ways but not in the level of what's put on here so like i said it's taking that that raw source material and not being afraid to inject some wildness into it and they go for it the the cat sequence with uh, rufus i think it's the cat's name is perfect and it shows all sides of this. You know, there's the creepy in as they're looking for the cat and then a, a more horrible reveal of when they find the cat dead and then right back into funny. It's build up, release, build up, release. And that's somebody that understands an audience. You know, we're built up with trying to find this cat. It's horrible that we found it dead. And then we have that perfect, you know, what was I supposed to do? Leave a note, cat dead, details later uh, moment. And then he wakes up, Dan wakes up to hear the this horrible screaming. Going through the house, we're all tense. He falls down the stairs, tense, tense, tense. And then there's Herbert scrambling with this cat on his back. And then they're chasing it around the basement in this wonderful scene. And, you know, up in, you know, scariness diffused, scariness diffused. It's a perfect example of a horror comedy done well, because it's scary when it needs to be. And it's funny when it needs to be, but it understands what it's doing. Nobody's trying to be funny. It's it's easy to look at bad horror comedies or unintentional stuff. You know, like people say, very common thing that's, you know, thrown at horror movies. It's, oh, God, it was so ridiculous. It was hilarious. And there are a lot of films like that that don't in, that try to be funny or try to be over the top. You know, something like Bad Taste, you know, or Meet the Feebles or Brain Dead. Peter Jackson's early splatter films. Those are examples of their intentionally injecting a lot of humor, a lot of comedy into those moments where here, the funny moments come out of how ridiculous it is, but how devilishly straight everybody's playing it, especially Jeffrey Combs, because so much of the humor comes out of, of his, his performance and how everyone's reacting to him and very, like I said, very little attempts to be outright funny. No one's telling jokes at any point. It just slowly escalates and gets so out of hand. And then by the end, by the time we get to Dr. Hill has his head cut off and his body's walking around holding it, 
and you know the the famous head giving head scene and then the bodies exploding all over the place at the end with the, the intestines coming out and getting very lovecraftian and grabbing people it's it descends into utter madness because that's a key element that he preserved from the lovecraft stories while he took a lot of liberties and injected stuff like the sex and the violence into it, he still maintained the key things that make a Lovecraft story classic. And usually that's an educated person being exposed to a situation that they cannot handle and they go mad. Whether that's looking upon a... Uh, an ancient god seeing something beyond the boundaries of what they can process so by the time we get to the end poor dan kane our hero has gone through this long struggle of just one more insane situation one after the next and what started in the er is this idealistic doctor who didn't want to let a patient go has now gone on this terrible descent into madness that at the end of it he becomes the mad scientist and uses the reagent on Megan. It's a perfect film, or as near perfect to a horror film as you're going to get, or just a film in general. Characters arc. The story comes together at the end. The, the, the violence and the sex and the comedy all work together so wonderfully well. There's a threatening villain. There's gray morality. Everything is perfectly at play here. And even the moments that where an effect is a little goofy or doesn't hasn't aged very well, it just plays into this maddening tone that is created. It's it's perfect. It is it's not in my top three, but I found that if I ever go outside of that into a top five, it usually lands in my top five. Excellent film. So from Reanimator, Gordon's career kind of blew up and he was offered a, a three picture deal by Charlie band and empire pictures. They Charlie band kind of likes to talk about his involvement with reanimator, but it was more from a, no, he didn't have any creative input. He wasn't putting in money or anything like that. He gave some crew and stuff to it. Mac Albert famously came from him, but after the success of reanimator, band was like got to get this guy this is he's going to be he's going to be something big so we offered uh Stuart Gordon a three picture deal and Gordon then spent the next 3 years in Rome or 2 years in Rome making movies for Empire Pictures the first movie he made was Dolls uh which as i said at the start i don't have so i'm not going to review here but it's an excellent movie you should definitely check it out and then finished Dolls and immediately on the same sets, turned and started working on From Beyond, the second of the Lovecraft adaptations that he did. Now, originally, he wanted to adapt Dagon. That was the story he wanted to do as his follow-up to Reanimator. But Charlie Van put the the kibosh on our kibosh on that. It's like people turning into fish. No one's going to give a shit about that. So he was the one that actually pitched From Beyond as a as a possible follow-up. Now. Most people, if you're a Lovecraft fan, you know that From Beyond's hard to adapt because it's essentially only about a seven-page story. So what do you possibly do there? So, synopsis. From Beyond, from 1986, 
A group of scientists have developed the Resonator, a machine that allows whoever is within range to see beyond their normal, normal perceptible reality. But when the experiment succeeds, they are immediately ta- attacked by terrible life forms. Yep, close enough. So, because the story is only seven pages long, you obviously can't take and flesh that out to a full movie. So, what they did is the Lovecraft story actually is the pre-title sequence. That's pretty much all the material from that that's in the movie. Is It's the opening with Jeffrey Combs turning on the machine and finding out what's happening and windows blowing out and ends with a scream. And then they took that and the idea of, okay, what would happen next? If there was more to the story, where would it go? So keeping the the trappings of Lovecraft, but then also going much, much, much further. And one of the big clues and the big thing they latched onto here is in the Lovecraft story, reference to the pineal gland in the brain. And that is the part of your brain that regulates our sex drive. And it does seem odd that Lovecraft would directly reference something like that because his stories are so asexual. But that's kind of the big thing that they grabbed on there. And in this movie, it really ups the level of sex and sexuality uh, compared to something like Reanimator. And in the in the interviews for the the director's cut of this film, Stuart Gordon he makes reference to the film as being kind of lurid in a good way, and in a lot of ways it is, especially compared to something like Reanimator. The it has a very psychedelic quality to not only the the colors but just the imagery itself. The idea of it's almost like you're looking at a bad acid trip of people's faces changing and bodies changing and hands sinking into other people and monsters and visions kind of appearing out of thin air. And that kind of lurid sensibility also played into the visual style and the editing style. It's in its own way, it moves slower than something like Reanimator, especially because it's for a lot of the movie, it, it's bound to one single location. They bounce away at certain points, but usually they're just in this house. And by moving at kind of this more slower pace, it f- were trapped in this house with these visuals and the sweat and the sexuality and the, the bondage elements of the film and these incredibly phallic creatures you know, giant worms and Dr. Pretorius, his monster, his final form is literally a giant dick coming out of this thing. You know, a, a sperm monster literally rips its way out of their foreheads when the pineal, pineal gland is overstimulated. And and then, of course, the most lurid element of the whole film, Ken Foray running around in his little Speedo. You know, it it is delightfully lurid and it forces you to live with it in a great way. And again, I think that's a bit more, that's more of the theatrical background coming out. You know, if you're a theater director, you know that you have, you have this audience trapped in a room with you. You don't have the separation of the screen that you get, especially if you're watching something at home. It's different. If you go to the movie theater, there's less of a separation because the screen's so big. But when you're in a, a theater, 
a, a dramatic theater to see a play, you, you have very little separation. You just have the distance between you and the stage. People could reach out and touch you if you, they wanted to. And that's what it feels like here. The film feels sticky and it feels kind of gross and with all the slime and the gooiness. But despite all these elements and the upping the sex and the violence and all that stuff, in some ways it feels more traditional in in a Lovecraftian sense. While it is still at odds with the with the source material, it does still maintain a, a traditional Lovecraftian tone. You know, it's again, someone is meddling with forces far beyond their control. And in this case, it's not just reanimating the dead with this resonator. It's allowing them to look beyond the veil, which is a very was central to the, the Cthulhu mythos with Lovecraft. The idea that there are things out there watching us with indifference that are so much bigger than anything we could understand. They operate outside of our laws of physics thus operating outside of our laws of morality. And that slowly starts to drive the characters into insanity and then eventually into destruction. And it's a nice flip here because we have Jeffrey Combs instead of in the mad scientist position now moves into the role of, you could say, the victim. And Barbara Crampton steps up and becomes this corrupt mad doctor. But the, the science elements are neat. You know, if they don't go too deep into it, but they're playing with ideas that Lovecraft was looking at, the ideas of a multiverse, uh, string theory, dark matter, these, these things that are beyond our spectrum, even just simply in the color spectrum, what we can physically see around us. You know, that's what string theory deals with. Um, if you don't know what I'm talking about, just go Google it. It's very interesting. It's basically, it deals with what the building blocks of our universe on a, on a quantum physics subatomic level actually are just this vibrating of, of atoms and strings. And that vibration coalesces into us and the reality that we perceive. It's, it's interesting. It adds a, it adds just a, a level of depth to the film, but it's it's a level of depth that was in the original Lovecraft stories, and it's what made those stories so fascinating. Because despite the, you know the, the monsters and the the craziness and the fish people and all that, and despite the craziness in this film, there's a plausibility to it all. A sense that yeah, there it makes sense that there could be things like this out there, just because we can't see it. You know, we, for years, we couldn't see, you know, what even made us up, you know, the idea of quantum physics and subatomic particles and all those things, you know, the, how much of the universe we can actually measure is, is minute. I think it's something like 93% of looking out into the universe. We can't actually do the math for that's where all the dark matter theories and everything comes from is that other dimensions pushing in on us that we can't measure who knows but it it just gives another another great leg to this now the film is notorious in a lot of ways just like reanimator but kind of for different reasons there's the the level of sexuality you know it's 
can't go on a horror Facebook page or something for too long without somebody posting a photo of Barbara Crampton in the bondage gear. It's like, yes, guys, we get it. Like, that's in the movie. And I'm sure actresses like her love being tagged in that shit constantly because, you know, that's not just a job they went and did. It's, I don't know, that, that shit I don't understand. I don't get when I see, you know, on a horror page I follow and someone will be like, you know, he posting this photo is awesome. And then they tag them in it. I'm like, guys, I, I sincerely doubt they need to see that popping up on their Facebook every day. But whatever. It's, it's wild. Absolutely wild. Because we weren't seeing representations of that. You know, BDSM and leather and all that kind of stuff and how we process in the media and deal with sexuality has changed a lot since 1986. But at the time, this was this was scandalous stuff because it drew that, it really thinned that line between sex and violence, which is is always been a, a thin line. But here he really pushes that and just about to the breaking point. And like I said, it goes right down into the penisy monsters. It's it's a big effect show in the classic horror sense. It's one of those shows that multiple crews worked on. So like the Nightmare on Elm Street movies were famous for that, hiring multiple crews. Guys like John Carl Beekler, Mark Showstrom, Robert Kurtzman, Greg Nicotero, Gabe Bartolos. Everybody worked on this movie. And when it gets big, it gets big. There is a lot of rampant visual craziness that goes on display here. And it goes wild and over the top, just like Reanimator did, but this wonderful, reckless sense of abandonment. But that's not just something that comes from Stuart Gordon. And, well, a lot of that drive for craziness is is obviously his vision, and he makes the movies he wants to make. But I want to stop and talk for a second about this kind of, this combination of players that was on these first two films. The combination of Stuart Gordon directing, Brian Yuzna producing, Dennis Paoli writing with those, with that, that group, and Mac Alberg shooting, that was a winning combination along the lines of kind of other famous filmmaking teams, horror teams like John Carpenter, Deborah Hill, and Dean Cundy shooting together. It's, while Gordon and them, may he made other good movies, there was something special about that combination of filmmakers, just like with Carpenter Hill and, and Dean Cundy, made not just their best pictures, but I think their, their truest pictures to what they were doing and to their individual style. And, you know, they, there, there would be repairings, you know, Stuart Gordon would work with Brian Yuzna again in the future. They did Dagon together, you know, Stuart Gordon and Mac Albert collaborated frequently. Um, it was a lot of it was during the empire pictures era. So they made, they made these first two movies together. They did dolls together, robot jocks. They reunited for space truckers, the wonderful ice cream suit and King of the ants. And, just go to IMDb and just check out Mac Alberg's IMDb page. He was, like I said, Charlie Vann's kind of in-house DP for years. And he worked on probably the best of the Empire Pictures. If you ever are stuck for something to watch and you're like, I don't want to watch something fun and old school and trashy, but I don't know what to pick. 
just go to his IMDb page and you will rarely be without something fun to watch. But that group of of talent together, they just seem to jive. You know, like it's it's where you can, you know, you have an amazing core unit of a band and if members get replaced or they go off and do other projects, there's still great work they can do together. But they were kind of like, I don't, I'm not comparing them in a level of importance, but it's kind of like the Beatles, you know, all those guys went off and did, and did great work alone. But when they were all together, there was something special about that. And I think that's what elevates these first two movies. And I think it's hard not to talk about them as kind of a pair because usually they come as a pair. People talk about, if you're going to recommend Stuart Gordon movies to somebody, you usually recommend Reanimator and From Beyond. Those are the first two that kind of roll off people's tongue. There, other people have their favorites, and there's definitely other movies worth recommending, and we're going to talk about those. But there was there was just something special about this time in these first few films that this group did together. And just like reanimator, we wrap perfectly back up with that Lovecraftian ending of our main character with Barbara Crampton being driven insane. And, and it's a perfect Lovecraft ending. She ends the movie laughing insanely. And you know that she's done like her, her life is over. At this point, she's going to spend the rest of her years laughing into a corner in an insane asylum. It's just great. It's very different than Reanimator, and it's very different than what would follow it. But rightly so. You know, when we get shit we like, we tend to want, just think we want it again and again and again. You know, it's like if we have a band that releases an amazing record, we get pissed off if the next record isn't exactly the same as that one before even though by the time the following record comes out, we've gotten used to the new one and we're mad that it doesn't sound like the previous one, right? So that's what's great about this movie is it's it's different, but they are symbiotic, these first movies. The, the difference in the theatrical to unrated isn't as dramatic as it was with Reanimator. There were some lost scenes famously when... Uh, Jeffrey Combs is sucking the eyeball out of Carolyn Purdy Gordon's head and kind of rips her eyeball out, spits it out, and then sucks her brains out of her eye socket. So there there was a couple of things they put back in when the the trims and stuff were finally found. If all you can find is the original tape, the theatrical version, it's fine, really. You know, obviously you want to watch a film as as intact as possible to the original vision. I spent years though, watching the, my tape and of the original version. And there's nothing wrong with it. It's, it's a perfectly acceptable. It's not the, the huge jarring difference of something like the different cuts of reanimator or like blade runner or something like that. So great movie. So moving on in our, in our, our Lovecraftian vein here. We're coming on to Castle Freak. So Empire Pictures has collapsed at this point, and Charlie Band has come back to the States, and he started Full Moon. So I I could talk about Full Moon movies for ages, but 
not really going to get into that too much here because uh, that that's a whole different a whole different uh, story there. So Castle Freak. A from 1995. A man struggles to save his family from the strange and deadly occurrences in the castle they've inherited. Sure. So this is a a reunion of sorts between Stuart Gordon, Dennis Paoli, and but bringing back Jeffrey Combs and Barbara Crampton. Now this movie has a lot of love in in different sections of the horror community, and and I get it. Honestly. I'm I'm not a gigantic fan of this. There's parts of it that I really like, but to me it it just doesn't kind of work for me as a whole. I don't know why. It's it claims to be based on The Outsider by Lovecraft, but other than like one shot of the monster walking up to a mirror, it, it bears no resemblance to that story. It, it is the lawnmower man of Lovecraft adaptations. It's kind of like what the, what Roger Corman did with his Poe pictures in the sixties. It's, it's name recognition, right? Turning the narrator, like the outsider is, is an incredible story and you should definitely check it out if you haven't read it, but kind of turning that narrator of that original tale into this just this beat up, tortured eunuch who was locked up and beat up by their evil mom. It, it really robs it of its power. The story in all honesty, what rewatching it for this to me, it plays more like they, their own take on the shining than it does anything else. You know, you have a, a family coming to this remote location. You know, the dad's a recovering alcoholic. He's hurt one of the kids in the past and the, the madness in this place slowly drives them apart until the dad has to make a sacrifice play to save his family. That's what got me this time. I'm like, motherfucker, that's just the shining. You, you, you kind of stamped a few Lovecraft elements on it, but it's really just the shining. And like, like I said, I'm a big fan of empire pictures. I'm a big fan of full moon. But this movie was indicative of kind of Full Moon's twilight years. By this point, the the Paramount contract is kind of, it's ended. So the budgets are starting to drop, reduce shooting schedules. You know, they're shooting on family-owned property in, in Italy, just like they did with the subspecies movies to save money. And, like, despite that, Gordon still made made the best of, of what he had to work with. And that's something that he's always known for. No matter the limitations, he's still going to try. He's still going to make movies that look bigger and are more complex than these kind of films would normally, you know, would normally tend to be. And just like with reanimator and from beyond the, the performances from Jeffrey Combs and Barbara Crampton anchor the film. And Jeffrey Combs gets a chance to be a little more normal in this one. You know, he's just, he's playing for all intents and purposes, just a a broken man. Someone whose life got so out of his control and that led him to make unforgivable mistakes, which turned out he was driving drunk and he got in a car accident and his, their son was killed and their daughter was blinded. And, you know, those parts work. 
but other than a kind of a few shocking set pieces, I, I, eh, I'm not super stoked on it. I don't know. Maybe I just need to watch the movie more, but there are parts that are interesting. I found it just kind of sad, you know, the, the castle freak quote unquote of what he's been put through and, you know, that his mom fucking turned him into a eunuch and he's all mutilated. Now the reveal of him when he's in the, uh, his chamber, when he's dragged the prostitute away and, you know, shows him his, his, you know, balls and no dick and then bites her nipple off and violently breastfeeds. Like there's, there's moments like that that are like, Oh shit, those are some shocking moments. But it's like what I talked about with with Reanimator. There's lots of films out there, lots of real of fun horror films out there that their reputation's kind of built around a few shocking moments. But the rest of the film doesn't doesn't keep the speed up, doesn't have the same level of stank that those moments do. And I think that's that's what's happened here. Now he's still. You know, they're, his hallmarks of going just completely crazy and wild are still present here. But I think someone like Stuart Gordon, and this is no criticism of him as a filmmaker, he is a filmmaker that benefits from a, a strong director photography. And there's a lot of directors out there like that, that that collaboration is so integral for a huge amount of filmmakers. You can look at films made by you know, big classic directors and you'll look at them and go, that looks odd. Something about this looks off. I bet you $10. They didn't have a good working relationship with their DP because that's such an integral partnership. And here it, I think it could have benefited from somebody like Mac Albert coming in and working on this movie because it just, it just kind of feels a little blah in the, in its shooting style. It doesn't have a lot of energy to keep it moving. What the budget isn't giving it and what its shooting schedule isn't giving it the, the camera, the visual style, the editing doesn't help, you know, lift it up just that little bit, you know, extra piece of energy that it needed. But again, what it's trying to do and what the film is trying to be still does shine through this, you know, broken family, this idea of lost children, both past and present, you know, one that, you know, in the present Stuart or Jeffrey Combs and, and Barbara Crampton, they've lost their child to, you know, a shameful mistake. You know, the, the castle freak himself, his life was destroyed by this anger and malevolence, you know, these, these ghosts of our past coming back and literally whipping us <laughs> and as happens at the end of the movie. So the, the bones of its original intent are definitely there. And I know for a lot of people with this film, that's, that's enough and that's fine. Cause I have films like that where I'll watch them with somebody and they're like, you, there's a lot of pieces that are almost put together here, but they don't quite work. And that's fine to me in certain circumstances here I just kind of felt like it was just, I was more frustrated by how close it was to being really exceptional of all of his movies. And I don't normally recommend this fate for, for almost any film, but I think this could definitely benefit 
from a remake, more so than almost anything else he's ever done. The idea of a couple that's inherently shattered at their core being trying to put some semblance of their life back together and being torn apart by some Lovecraftian devilry is ripe for storytelling. It's, you know, there's tons of, of material to, to, to try and exploit there, especially in a, you know, in a, a castle setting or something like that. Um, and even, you know, incorporating more of the, you know, the sex and temptation elements that are in Gordon's earlier work and kind of use that as a kickoff, you know, b- taking and blending what Gordon did so well with Lovecraft and what Lovecraft did so well with Lovecraft and smashing that together. I'm looking at you, Mike Flanagan. You seem to have an incredible handle on taking old material and breathing new life into it. So that's what I would like to see. Mike Flanagan remake Castle Freak. I think that would be absolutely fucking awesome. But uh, again, it's it's probably my it's my least favorite of all the Lovecraft adaptations. But the parts that it does get right still knock it like it it's still better than most other Lovecraft adaptations because that's that's the thing with with Stuart Gordon's movies that even his movies that don't work as well as others still work better than most people's other efforts you know it's like when you have a you know classic bands where it's like you know even a middle of the road song by them you know even a middle of the road song by Rush is better than most people's other work altogether you know and that's kind of the case here or at least that's how i feel about it now that brings us to 2001 with the film dagon a boating accident runs a young man and woman ashore in a decrepit spanish fishing town which they discover is in the grips of an ancient sea god and its monstrous half-human offspring that's a near perfect synopsis of dagon now despite being called dagon it's actually more of a an adaptation of Shadow Over Innsmouth. Uh, other than the boat kind of getting stranded on the rocks at the beginning, it it, it doesn't bear a, a ton of resemblance to, to Dagon. But that kind of makes sense in the same way of something like From Beyond, because Dagon is a very short story. Again, it only amounts to seven or so pages. But it's it was the first of the of the Cthulhu mythos stories. And Shadow Over Innsmouth was actually one of the last ones. And it's a, it's a film that Gordon's been trying to make since 1986. It was, he wanted to follow up Reanimator with it. And it's a movie that it gets kind of overshadowed a little bit when people talk about his, his Lovecraft work. I think a lot of that comes from the pretty dodgy CGI that's in the film because it does it does kind of break the pace of it but it's an excellent movie it to me overall it feels the most lovecraftian of all of the adaptations kind of the straight lovecraftian vibe about it the the spanish town imboca as they're calling it instead of innsmouth if the constant rain and the filth of everybody and these fish parts tentacles dangling out of people and seeing actual tentacle creatures and hearing people do the the prayers you know the Cthulhu Fatagan stuff and seeing actual Cthulhu priests and raising up the gods from the water 
and sacrifices and things like that. It, it feels like the most accurate visual adaptation of a Lovecraft story. And I think that's the strongest, the strongest thing to speak to with this film, because unfortunately the CGI is, it is jarring. It's, it's 2001. It's an indie movie. You know, they went for it. You know, Stuart Gordon's pretty fearless in that department. You know, he'll just go for it and just work, do the best with what you got. And unfortunately that, that does hurt. Like you could say some of the credibility of the film, but if you can get past that, there is a lot to love here. Ezra Godden is our, our Jeffrey Combs stand in because you can tell the movie was, it was obviously written for Jeffrey Combs. You know, this is a, you know, a skinny pasty dude, you know, with his, with his black rim glasses on and his Miskatonic sweatshirt, you know, it's, he's playing Jeffrey Combs or at least trying to play him. And the film works. There's some genuinely frightening set pieces. The flaying scene where they, they flay the old man is brutal, but it's not a movie where, unlike the other, his other Lovecraft stuff, where other than the flaying scene, there's not a lot of big gore moments or anything like that. It's, you're in for more of a, an immersive tonal experience. It's like you're, you're watching the book being read out loud or a story being read out loud. And it plays like that. It has not a, a leisurely pace in any way, but it moves a little slower than the other ones. And it's just typical Lovecraft. The guy is just one bad moment into the next, into the next, into the next. And, you know, it, it's just, it's crazy. Dagon's a hard one to, to unpack because it's, you can't just kind of latch on to these individual sequences. It's like you can with some of the other films. And because it is such a departure from the other movies, it, I don't say it defies discussion, but you would almost have to talk about it more in a, a, a literal sense of a, of taking apart a Lovecraftian adaptation because it is, it's his most traditional effort. And I recommend both stories. Uh, Dagon is a, a great primer. You know, if you've never read any Lovecraft fiction, like obviously, you know, if you want to get knee deep into the Cthulhu mythos, you know, start with the Call of Cthulhu, you know, and then go from there. Or stuff like um, the Dunwich Horror is incredible or At the Mountains of Madness. But Dagon is just a kind of a good little moment. You're not hugely invested in a long story, like something like At the Mountains of Madness. But you get a sense of what the mythos were going to be and how it was eventually going to lead to an entire town of fish hybrids. <laughs> uh, because that's what they are. They've given themselves over to, to the god Dagon. And, and the literal, from what I can gather, have, have been having sex with him and making these these fish people. And then eventually when they're finally evolved, they'll go back into the sea and live with him and dwell in his house forever. And it it's a wonderfully ambiguous ending. You know, it it doesn't end with the character killing all the bad guys or even going mad. It just kind of ends with him realizing this unavoidable destiny 
you know, this, this horrid future that no matter how much he fought against, he, he can't deny. And, you know, even setting himself on fire is no, it's no saving grace. Like there is no help coming for this character. So it's, it's under, it's underappreciated. It was kind of badly marketed here. I remember Fangoria talked about it and like all the, the press, like all the horror mags and stuff talked about it, but it had a, it had a shit cover and that hurt it. And it's definitely of all of his Lovecraft movies. It's one that deserves the most reappraisal and just reappraisal is a good horror movie in general. It's just a really good horror movie. So, because, and, but that's Stuart Gordon, right? You know, you're all, you're getting a pretty reliable fare each time you pop one in the VCR. So that brings us back. Yes, I own Dagon on VHS. Ha <laughs> So that brings us to the last of the Lovecraft stuff. And that's with Dreams in the Witch House. Now, yes, I understand that this isn't a film. This was his Masters of Horror episode. But you know what? I'm perfectly fine with that. Because if we're going to talk about Gordon and Lovecraft, we, we really have to go whole hog on this. So, Dreams in the Witch House from 2005. A graduate student questions his sanity after he rents a room in an old boarding house, which was the residence of a 17th century witch, and he figures out that evil forces still roam within the walls. So, to talk about this, we really have to talk about Masters of Horror. Now, before it was a show, Masters of Horror actually started out as a series of kind of informal dinners that uh, filmmaker Mick Garris started organizing in L.A. And it grew over the years, but these guys would get together and just get a restaurant somewhere and just have dinner and talk shop. And you had filmmakers ranging from, like I said, Mick Garris Toby Hooper, Stuart Gordon, Don Coscarelli, John Carpenter, George Romero, Guillermo del Toro, Rob Zombie, Eli Roth, all of these incredible filmmakers that would all just get together and just have dinner and drinks and sit around a big table and talk about other work, each other's work. And I'm, I'm not familiar with another genre that has ever, I've never heard of something like that. I know there's, you know, we, we, if you're a film person, you know, you can look at kind of that, the director cinema era where all those filmmakers like Brian De Palma, Steven Spielberg, Martin Scorsese, all those guys, Francis Ford Coppola, William Friedkin, all kind of knew each other and socialized. But I think that was also a much more competitive thing where they weren't actually all friends. Whereas, here, like, just go and Google any of the pictures from the dinners of these and just, oh, to be a fly on the wall at one of those events when all the masters were still with us. And Stuart Gordon was known as a, a stalwart attendee of these dinners. And that kind of turned into a discussion of, well, we're all here. We're all friends with each other. Why don't we... What, what if we all did something? What if we did kind of like an anthology show where all of us got together and each made a movie? So Mick Garris being the, you know, the, the fan that could, you know, the, the horror fan that made good, uh, ran with this idea and created the TV show that became Masters of Horror. And the premise is all these classic directors would be given a, a set budget and a set amount of shooting time. But other than that, 
they could come in and do whatever they wanted. There was no, other than one case, there was no content restrictions, they, as much violence, sex, whatever stories they wanted to tell, anything that had been kind of sitting in their to-do drawer that they couldn't find funding for or a project they'd been nursing along. That's what a lot of these guys did in this case. And filmmakers, you know, like Dario Argento, John Carpenter, Larry Cohen, Joe Dante, Stuart Gordon, William Malone, Mick Garris, tons of guys came together and made this series. The hype for this surrounding this project was absolutely massive. It was, it came, started coming out when I was in college and I was doing stuff with Rue Morgue at the time. I was knee deep in, in horror in the horror world. And oh my God, this was going to be, this was going to be the greatest thing that had ever happened to horror since like, since the invention of, you know, prosthetic makeup and latex effects, this was going to reinvent the genre. It was going to, everyone was going to top their best works. Nothing would ever be the same again. The show didn't really live up to that hype. You know, unfortunately, it can't. You know, it's, it's a thing that it was so unprecedented that the hype was going to be so much bigger than even the best efforts of these guys could, could come to the table with. So, but despite not living up to this overwhelming hype, there were still some great episodes of this show that came out of it. Um, John Carpenter's cigarette burns is probably my favorite of the bunch. Uh, Don Coscarelli's incident on and off a mountain road is really good. Uh, Joe Dante's homecoming is really good. Uh, Takeshi Miike's imprint, which is the only one that was banned <laughs> that uh, Showtime refused to air uh, because it's pretty fucking wild. Uh, I remember showing it years ago to a friend of ours, a friend of mine, Kevin Shaughnessy. We put it on at his house and he fucking was not happy with us for putting that on. He's just, dude, dude, dude. And I think he got up and walked away. He was, uh, he was very unimpressed with what he saw. But one of the better efforts of the show was Dreams in the Witch House. Now, Gordon has, has been on record as saying that this is actually one of the first Lovecraft stories that he actually read. And it's one that he's wanted to do for a long time. Um, so this was a, a perfect avenue for him to him to pursue it. But just like Dagon, it's it's a much more traditional presentation of Lovecraft's work than Gordon's earlier adaptations of it. You know, an, an educated man comes into some sort of creepy location and in that location comes into contact with something that is beyond his ability to reason with or deal with. In this case, it's this witch that is actually moving back and forth between dimensions and the the dimensional vortex being this weird corner in in the wall of his room that he rents and it it comes back to the kind of the physics elements of from beyond where you have a professor who's studying these things he's studying you know quantum physics and the way that and multiverse theory and the way that they jut up against each other because technically if 
you know, we're all just this, if reality is just a series of multiverses laid one on top of the other, there would be places where those walls butt up against each other. And if you knew how to move from one to the other, you could facilitate passage between there. So that part of it is cool. Ezra Godin is back as, as our, our Jeffrey Combs stand-in, as our, he's a wonderful Lovecraftian foil. He really is, because he can play both educated and you also feel for the guy. He feels human. Didn't realize that he was British. He does a very, very passable American accent. But it it works. It's it's a I don't want to say it's a slow paced film, but it's a good slow build up towards the end. There's a lot of great religious imagery that Gordon doesn't play with too much in his other films here. You know, the, the, well, I should say other than Pit and the Pendulum, which we'll get to in a minute. But there's great moments in this movie when he breaks through the walls and finds the, uh, I guess you could say, kind of the ossuary of baby bones that are filling the inside walls of this house are wonderful. The, The little rat with the human face is very strange. But... No, in, in terms of Masters of Horror, this this one works very well because it it feels like a Stuart Gordon project. And I think the best of of Masters of Horror is when the directors felt like they were kind of making kind of their signature films. You know, whether it was a visual style or or a tonal promise or thematic elements that they were exploring. This this nicely kind of jumps from Dagon. It's not a throwback in any way to his early Lovecraft works. I think maybe some fans might have been expecting that, kind of more of a a balls-to-the-wall effort, like uh, like Reanimator from Beyond. But I I like this. That's one of the things about Lovecraft that really appeals to me, is the idea of educated people that get in over their heads out of a sense of curiosity. And it's, it's one of the reasons I have a soft spot for bad sci-fi movies that involve uh, professors or things like that. Like the movie, the core, the movie's an idiot, but I love that it's a, a dumb sci-fi problem and a bunch of intellectual people have to come together to, to fix it in some kind of over the top ridiculous way. So that's, that's what I love about Lovecraft. Obviously, you know, there's the Cthulhu mythos themselves are so wonderfully fascinating. But this, you know, educated person comes up against something that their education can't process. So it's well worth checking out. The Masters of Horror as a series, or Masters of Horror as a whole, is worth checking out. Just as kind of this weird product of the moment. You know, horror had been going through a wonderful renaissance at this point with the kind of exploding uh, theatrically again. Torture porn hadn't quite kicked off yet, but it was gearing up to explode into the, into the mainstream. DVD was blowing up, so a lot of these filmmakers were enjoying a pretty big renaissance in terms of availability of their, of their work. So it's worth checking out. It's it's a wonderful product of its time and a wonderful time capsule that we can look back on and know that, you know, all of our guys, all of our heroes got together on this one project and we're like, we're doing this 
for the fans, for us, for horror in general. So despite the fact that it's not perfect, there's such a nobility in that that, you know, I any problems or any shortcomings just fall by the wayside. So that's Stuart Gordon's Lovecraft work. And I know I could stop there. I probably should stop there because otherwise it's going to get long. We're only at an hour 16, but you know what? Stuart Gordon deserves the full fanfare, the full production. So if we can sit and watch The Tiger King for fucking eight hours, we can talk for, you know, an hour and a half, two hours about Stuart Gordon. And yes, I watched the whole thing. Holy fucking shit. Uh, maybe talk about that at a future episode, but I'm assuming all of you listening have probably watched it too. So moving on from the, the Lovecraft work in, we're going to look at three more of, of his non Lovecraft work, starting with 1991's the pit and the pendulum horror film set in 1492 Toledo, Spain, depicting the cruel deeds of a monk named Torquemada Torquemada. Grand Inquisitor of the Spanish Inquisition. Yep, that sums it up. This movie was actually the most fun I had doing this rewatch. Because the first time I watched The Pit and the Pendulum, I didn't care for it. I I don't know what it was if I wasn't in the the right headset or mindset or because it was full moon. I was watching it expecting it to be more traditionally full moon than than what I got. This is probably the most untraditional full moon movie that was ever made. When when Charlie Van left Italy, when Empire Pictures collapsed, came back to the States, started Full Moon Pictures, there was not a, a hard, fast rule at the company, but there was kind of an unspoken rule that the films that they made were going to be fun. They were the kind of movies that a you know a, a young horror fan could get a hold of and have a really great experience with. There'd be there'd be sex and there'd be blood, but they wouldn't be mean spirited or overly violent or overly salacious in any way. And for the most part, they Full Moon stuck to that rule quite a bit. And it's it's one of the things I love about Full Moon because it it sets those movies apart in kind of their own weird little tonal strange universe. It's why so many of the movies involve like killer puppets or dolls or things like that. So it wasn't a lot of you know, humans killing humans kind of violence. Here, though, all those rules seem to go right out the window. And I was I was pretty shocked watching it this time, because honestly, I'd only seen it once once before. And yes, I judged something once and didn't come back to it. You know, shame on me. I get it. I get it. But I, I was shocked in all the best ways. You know, when your movie starts... And you have the you know, Lance Henriksen in, I would like to say a career best performance or one of his career best, but every performance Lance Henriksen gives is amazing. You know, dragging this body out of a crypt that's obviously been dead for a very long time so that he can declare the fam- the dead man a heretic and... So only so the church can confiscate the family's holdings 
And then doesn't stop there. They still administer the punishments and they give the body 20 lashings. So the poor family has to stand there and watch the their body of their you know husband and father be dragged out of the box and then tied up and then literally cat and nine tailed to pieces. It's like, holy shit, dude, you are not messing around. And just the just that that's the pre-title sequence. Just right there. This is fearless Stuart Gordon at his best. The the level of of violence and depravity that's on play here. I the whole time I'm sitting in my room watching this going like, holy shit. No, holy shit. And just going for one more after the other. You know, with when Lance Henriksen, you know, takes his robes off and pulls off this girdle that he's wearing that's covered in hooks so that he's constantly hurting himself. And then kneels in the broken pottery and has Buddy whip him. You know, a guy that he crucified himself. So he's got these big open scars on his hands. And periodically throughout the film, Lance Henriksen is sticking his finger into the guy's crucifixion holes. Holy shit. You know, sleeping under a sword of Damocles. This girl that, because he's a, obviously a crooked holy man that he falls in love with, dresses her up as the Virgin Mary before he tries to rape her. Like, and then, and then cuts her fucking tongue out. It gets, whoa, whoa. And then all the scenes in the torture chamber and the dungeon where you see everybody all fucked up. Like, it's just, it's wild. You know, he still manages though to keep a bit of a bouncy tone to it there is some humor jeffrey combs is kind of this i don't know bureaucrat or whatever he's doing the the funny guy kind of the dopey guy pushing the bodies away is you know it it adds a bit of levity to it because i think without that levity it's the Witchfinder general like i don't know if that that humor was forced on them or if they intentionally tried to do this but i was i was pretty surprised but I guess if you're going to make a movie about the Inquisition with any kind of real honesty, you have to go for it because even what they showed is, is just a hair compared, you know, it's, it's nothing. It's a grain of sand on the beach compared to the horrible, sick, violent shit that we did to each other during the Inquisition and the witch hunts or even just history in general. There's, you know, our history is littered with more horrible methods of death and destruction of the human body and the spirit than anything that's ever been committed to film. And we get to see a lot of them on play here. Now, I don't know if it's plausible that someone could eat gunpowder and then explode, but it really doesn't matter because she uses her body as a fucking living grenade. And, and blows herself up and her bones and everything and pale these dudes. It is just, the movie is just wacky. It's just straight up wackadoo. So much better than I remembered it being. Lance Henriksen is at, just horrifically delightful, but he he's, plays such a good bad guy in anything that he does. You know, the our hero is fine. You know, everybody's got a good sense of presence, you know, accents are all over the place. Some of the costumes aren't perfect. You know, there's a lot more spandex and tights and stuff than I remember there being in history class, but it really doesn't matter 
because it all ties together in this kind of neat little insane package. And again, if you're looking for a full moon, if you're a full moon fan, you've probably seen this. But if you only have kind of a, you know, a tertiary, you know, or an outsider's knowledge of full moon, like you've you might have seen Puppet Master or Demonic Toys or Subspecies, you know, or Trancers, kind of their big franchises. Check out The Pit and the Pendulum. It was a sheer delight. And that's what's so much fun about collecting films, an entire filmmaker's body of work, is if they have a body of work of any kind of, you know, substantial size, you're usually not intimately familiar with every single movie that they've made. And I'm, I'm the same way, you know, with a filmmaker like Clive Barker, it's easy to be very familiar with all of his movies because he only wrote and directed three films, but somebody like John Carpenter or Wes Craven or Toby Hooper or Stuart Gordon, who have much more robust filmographies, you can't always be a hundred percent up to date on it unless that you have kind of tunnel vision You know, that is the one filmmaker you love the most and you watch one of their movies every week. So to come back to this and kind of be surprised, because honestly, if I wasn't doing this celebration, I don't know when I would have come back to the pit and the pendulum. I'm sure I would have eventually just as a as a full moon fan. And I'm I'm it's terrible that it took something like this to get me to come back to it. But it's what a filmmaker like this is capable of. They can keep giving you little gifts, you know, from even from beyond. Ah, I can't tell if that's in bad taste or in good taste, but whatever, I said it. And, you know, a sheer delight, an absolute delight. Check out The Pit and the Pendulum. Cannot recommend it enough. Another film I cannot recommend enough is Space Truckers from 1996. Now, I did not see this movie until rather recently, probably in the last four years. And I love cheesy sci-fi stuff like Ice Pirates or Battle Beyond the Stars. Uh, I just watched a movie the other night, uh, Moon 44 uh, by Roland Emmerich, which was fucking awesome. Uh, Kind of pre-Universal Soldier Roland Emmerich. And so I, I have a big soft spot for these kind of movies, especially if you can inject some humor into it and just have kind of this shameless fun tone about the whole thing. And Space Truckers is definitely that. You can get the idea of what it's going to be about from the title. It doesn't bury the lead. It's about Space Truckers. So synopsis from 1996. A space trucker and his cute fiance are on their way from a space station to Earth with an unknown cargo. When space pirates hijack them, 5,000 disintegrator robots are found in the cargo. That's fucking beautiful, man. I don't need to say anything else. That is that is a perfect synopsis. Like, What else do you need me to tell you? There's, there's 5,000 disintegrator robots in the back of a space truck. That's it. I could literally stop the review right there and... You, I, I don't know why I would need to tell you anything else. That should be enough to get your, your butts out of your seats and go and find this movie somewhere. It has such a great shameless sense of fun. There's so much sci-fi uh, by its very nature is can be quite grim and serious. And it's it's rare to find one that intentionally 
is just out to have a total rip, but one that that has some that has some decent money and skill behind it. You know, this movie for 1996 had a real budget. I think I've read somewhere in the neighborhood of $25 million. Like, and it's on the screen. Like this is, they got every penny up there. Like there's some elaborate sets built for this and some elaborate exteriors and stuff and ships that they built. And, but it is, like I said, it's, it's shamelessly fun. It has, it's making no qualms about what it is. It's working class people, in kind of a, you know, a, a goofy future, you know, where you're dealing with all these, the same bullshit that somebody, you know, at a normal truck stop would deal with, you know, people don't want to pay for their loads. And, you know, the, the poor waitress can't afford to get home to see her family. Like you could take the story and drop it onto earth and it would work just as well. But by putting it in this sci-fi setting, it allows it to go so much more wild and carefree with itself. You know, the square pigs that he's transporting, yes, square pigs, and the pirate robot or the pirate cyborg with his pull start dick, that's worth the price of admission alone. You know, Dennis Hopper is great in this. He It's a very restrained performance, I would say, all overall. He's he's not kind of going crazy, um, you know. He's just playing a, a blue collar dude that's just just got to get my load in, just got to get in the truck, and just got to get the job done. You know, got his ball cap on, and he's just out doing a job. So it's it's great. You know, we get to see some regulars. Um, you know, Barbara Crampton shows up in a bit of a I guess you'd almost call it a cameo. Uh, Carolyn Purdy Gordon's there, uh, Stuart Gordon's wife. You know, it's. It's always good to see Barbara Crampton in anything. You know, it's wonderful that she's going through, has had such a resurgence as an actress in the last few years. And it's, it's, it's a downright shame that she never got a chance to break out big in the mainstream because she is such a good actress. And wherever she shows up, even if it's for three or four minutes, or whether she can bring a whole or carry a whole picture. Um, it's just, this movie is so much fun from the, the square pigs and all that stuff. The, the killer disintegrator robots are very, you know, typical of the time. These kind of big silver tubey robots, you know, stuff like full moon's mandroid prototype, countless other killer silver robot movies that came in the wake of Terminator. It's, it's great. It's just a total rip. I don't, I don't want to go too much into detail and go scene by scene because I don't want to spoil it for you because it's, if it's one of those movies where you're kind of watching it and go, how can it get weirder? Oh, it gets stranger. How could it get? And then it just one to the next. So check it out. I'm, I'm sure it's available. It's streaming somewhere. I think it might be on Amazon prime. Um, but well worth, well worth checking out. It's one of my favorite bad movie movies. Um, but it, it even, it, it kind of transcends that bad movie quality because there's, there's movies that try really hard and fall completely flat on their face at every turn. And that's wonderful. You know, things like Miami connection or deadly prey or things like that. But this is a movie where everything's intentional. The, the silliness is intentional. The campiness, it's all 
custom built for you. You know, you don't, you don't have to kind of reach out to this film. It knows exactly what it is and you're, you're going to get to enjoy that along with it. So space truckers cannot recommend it enough. So that brings us to the penultimate. So the, the last of our, of our Stuart Gordon films that I have in my personal collection is 2003's King of the Ants. Now, this one is definitely it's an anomaly in in his in his body of work. Now, again, I can't speak to Edmund and Stuck. I know those were you know, I guess you could say a little more mainstreamy with the actors and stuff he's working with. But this is an odd film. And I remember I I went out and bought it at the time specifically because it was, Oh, it's the new Stuart Gordon movie. We need, I need to go see it. So I went out and I bought the DVD and honestly, I watched it once and I didn't watch it again. I remember reading about it, I think in Fangoria and they, as can be kind of typical for different eras of Fango, uh, especially in the early two thousands, they didn't really tell you what it was. Um, they focused on a couple of the more psychedelic elements. Like there's a scene famously where he's hallucinating after being bashed in the head so many times. And he sees the girl that he's interested in or in love with has kind of taken on this monstrous appearance. And then, then she starts eating her own shit. So that was the image they showed. So they made it out to be a bit more of a creature feature. Um, and it is not, uh, at all. So King of the Ants from 2003, a young drifter discovers his true calling when he's hired by a mobster to stalk and kill a prominent accountant, then decides to seek revenge when the stingy thugs try to kill him rather than pay him. This is a very unpleasant film to, to watch. It is... Asylum, apparently. I didn't realize. I don't know if the Asylum just picked it up or if there was a time when they actually thought they were going to make movies <laughs> instead of their uh, their mockbusters that they became known for. And it is a it is a no budget film. You know, there's there's shooting in locations. There's no sets that I could see. Uh, maybe the barn <laughs> they built, but. You know, it looks like it was shot on a digital camera that you could get anywhere. But Gordon is still, he's still making the best of this situation. And because the material is so raw, he he stays raw. It it almost kind of feels like that, like that guerrilla style indie film that Gordon never really got to make early in his career. Because it feels like that, you know, there's shots where they're running around uh, L.A. that I doubt they had permits. (laughs) I doubt they had anything like that. You know, there's a couple of times where people are walking and the tracking shot, you could it shifts for a second. You can see the edge of the car window that they're shooting out of, you know, and they're just kind of running around the streets, stealing shots at a distance. But it it creates this kind of very ugly, raw, snuffish vibe to the whole thing where you feel like you're just following this poor son of a bitch around, you know, and it, it works in, in that sense, 
You know, the performances are, again, strong. Seeing George Went from Cheers as such a violent, evil character is very upsetting. You know, he plays kind of a, a buffoonly bad guy in Space Truckers. But to see him here as like a murdering psychopath is is heavy. You know, Daniel Baldwin is is in it, kind of the leader of the uh, the the mob cronies. And it's I I like Daniel Baldwin. I I really like him in uh, John Carpenter's Vampires. He kind of reminds me of he reminds me of Alec Baldwin without any of the pretense. You know, he plays that raw, angry guy. He is you know like Alec Baldwin's obviously out of his mind. But Daniel Baldwin, his performances bring that kind of rage that his older brother is capable of, just kind of there all the time. And that's he's he's definitely a high point of the film. It's it's a very amoral film. You know, Crawley, our our hero, or our main character, I should say, he's not even an anti-hero. He's a villain. Straight up, he's paid by these guys that he knows are crooks to stalk somebody. And then he accepts the money to kill this guy, which he does. And then after he escapes from this torture they're putting him through, he goes and weasels his way into the wife's bed, knowing what he's done, and then goes back and kills all the guys and then walks free. It's, that's not... That's not an, an anti-hero in, in any way. It's, it's a straight-up villain. And he walks free at the end. And there's this terrible sense that innocent people die, good people die, just as easily as bad guys. And no one is punished at all. You know, the, the person that actually, you know, Crawley's the one that killed this guy, that destroyed his family and deceived his wife. And he walks away scot-free. You know, the other guys are bad guys. You know, I'm sure they've done tons of other crimes. And they are punished, you know, for what they did to Crawley. But, you know, the, the real innocents, they don't get any justice in this film. And it... It centers around, you know, Crowley's done this job and the crooks, instead of paying him, just try to run him out of town. And when he won't leave, when he tries to blackmail them, they take him out to this old house and proceed to bash his head in for days on end to try and scramble his brains, <laughs> try and scramble his memory. And it's it's brutal. It's terrible to watch because these crooks approach it with this very laissez-faire attitude. You know, they're keeping this guy in this barn or this shed, you know, covered in his own piss and shit and puke. And they're just wrapping a a piece of, you know, cotton around his head, a piece of foam around his head every day and bashing him in the skull with a with a golf club. But then just bitching that there's no more beer left and running around playing grab ass with each other. It's it's very unpleasant and it's a very strange film. It's one worth watching, but just with the caveat that it is very unpleasant. It's visually unpleasant to watch. The subject matter is ugly. It's, there's no winners. Like, and you don't, you know, with the Lovecraft stuff, nobody wins. Like, no one wins in the Dairy Challenge. Like, no one wins at the end of a Lovecraft movie, you know. Everybody's fucked up in some one weird, horrible way or the other. 
but here there's there's nothing like you you don't come out of the film feeling like you went on a fun romp despite people getting mutilated and crazied like they do in the earlier films here you just come out of the film kind of feeling worn out and bad which that's still an accomplishment especially with the no budget and i can't stress the no budget of this film enough i can't imagine this movie cost a hundred thousand dollars i'd be shocked so it's an odd film, and I wish I had some others to to finish talking about. <laughs> it's kind of a bummer note to end on, but that's it. That brings us to the end of the of my Stuart Gordon celebration, my Stuart Gordon memorial. Uh, it's I'm gonna have to once I'm allowed to go back outside because I'm still we're all still trapped in here. I'm gonna track down dolls because I want that uh, for my collection. Also, robot jocks and crash and burn. You know, there are Full Moon and Empire movies that he did with the giant robots, you know, kind of the pre-Pacific Rim of giant robots fighting each other. So if you haven't watched his movies in a while or haven't seen them at all, check them out. There, there was no filmmaker like Stuart Gordon. You know, he was a true master of his craft and a, a true original voice in the genre. And the best of the masters are, you know, their films in one way or the other are intrinsically their own and you wouldn't confuse them with any of their colleagues. And that's what made him such a magical filmmaker. So check it out. Moving on to deep space nine, (laughs) kind of a somber note and then jump right to DS nine. So the storyteller episode 13 of deep space nine, if you're not keeping track was released on May 2nd, 1993. While Sisko tries to negotiate an agreement between two Bajoran factions, he orders O'Brien to escort Bashir to investigate an emergency that endangers a village. Okay, this is a complete and total womp-womp episode that it it hurt the show. It's I've talked about before the, the times that early fans would be trying to watch the show, and an episode would happen that's like, I can just go and get this better on next generation. And that's exactly what this is. Um, I also, I've, I keep discussing in every episode. I talk about the idea of, is this DS nine specific content or is it, uh, something that could be done anywhere else in star Trek? This is definitely that this is content that not only could be done elsewhere, it could be done better elsewhere. A hundred percent. The idea of this village that they go to visit, they're using a piece of the Bajoran orb to manufacture this entity. And they've kind of tricked everybody, or at least the storytellers of this community for hundreds of years, have to re- to unite everybody with a common fear or a common enemy. They use this chunk of one of the Bajoran uh, orbs to create the, uh, the Darmok this cloud monster that comes out of the sky and the whole village has to get together and led by this storyteller. They are like, yes, we can do it. We're strong as a village. And then blue psychic power comes out of their heads and drives the, the cloud back away into the sky for another year. It's cute, but it's goofy as shit. Like it really is the, the B story of Cisco having to mediate this border dispute is it's stock star Trek. Um, and look, one of the leaders that shows up is just a teenager. Womp. It's not what we expected. 
It's fine. That's a Picard story. That's Picard would come in with his speeches and his elegance and mediate this. We get to see some fun moments with Jake and Nog, each having a horrible crush on this on this young girl. And their back and forth is kind of cute, but it all it, none of it amounts to anything. You know, we're not we're not pushing the story forward. Nothing's happening. It's just it's track that's been done better elsewhere. Really, the only high point of this episode is Bashir and O'Brien. Now, their their storyline is is one of the best parts of Deep Space Nine, and will get so much better as the show goes forward. But this is really the first time we've kind of seen them stuck with each other because we've we've seen O'Brien's annoyance with with Julian uh, leading up to this. But this is the first time where they're alone together in a situation and Julian flat out can ask, do I annoy you chief? And you know, O'Brien's a, he's a blue collar enlisted man. He's, this is his superior officer. He can't be honest about it. He is no, sir. Everything's fine. You see him rolling his eyes. And then when he gets sucked into this situation of, you know, trying to be this new holy man, that he's so not that person or prepared to do it at all. Just Julian's reaction is genuinely funny. You know, he's sitting there eating an apple and mocking him the whole time. But by the end of it, you can start to see that there's a somewhat begrudging respect that has been, you know, the, the seed has been planted between these two that will eventually grow into this, absolutely wonderful friendship over the course of the series. So I guess it is kind of required viewing in that sense. So you can see where their relationship began. But other than that, womp womp. That's really the only way to describe this episode. It's, it's hammy, it's stock, and it was done better elsewhere. So maybe next week's will be better. I don't know. Who knows? That's, that's the, the joy of season one. It's sometimes when it works, you get a glimpse of what it can be. And when it doesn't, it's just a fucking slog to get through. But anyway, something that wasn't a slog to get through the book. Uh, I read the huntress by Kate Quinn from 2019. I was never interested in reading, you know, historical fiction in any way, especially more modern historical fiction. Uh, my friend Tuesday has been, it's one of her favorite genres. So she's been kind of pestering me like, you need to read this. It's good stuff. So I had read, she lent me the ventriloquist and I read that and I'm like, holy shit, if that's what this genre is, that's really good. And I'd also picked up the Alice network by the same author by Kate Quinn. And it's set in world war one and two with the stories kind of interconnecting. And I read that and it was, it was fun. I, I wouldn't say I was bowled over by it in any way. It was, it was a cute, fun read. But Tuesday kept telling me, she's like, the Huntress. The Huntress is head and shoulders above this. You have to check it out. And I could, I, it kept popping up on best books of 2019. And after having read it, I completely understand why. This book is, it's rare to read an author to where you read a book and you're like, okay, that's not bad. You know, there's some potential here in the storytelling, but so, so, but then you pick up their next book and it's like, Oh my God, 
Like this is the leap from the Alice network to the Huntress is like the same leap that Stephen King took from Salem's Lot to The Shining. Now, I'm not saying The Huntress is as good as The Shining in any way, but it's that kind of monumental leap in storytelling skill. The the book is basically three books, three stories interwoven into one. We start in you know, post-war Boston, I think it's like 1946 or seven or something. And there's this young woman or young girl and her widowed father, and he meets this new woman. This woman comes into his life and slowly integrates into the family. And then we jump forward to 1950 with this, these two guys that are basically, they're Nazi hunters. Their whole gig is after the war, they took it upon themselves to start hunting down the Kind of the, the, the B-level war criminals, the stringers, you know, obviously they don't have the money or the facilities to go after the big guys, you know, other than the ones like the guys that escaped Nuremberg, you know, that's the boys from Brazil is kind of based on that with the, the Nazi hunters that went after the guys in Brazil. But he has this kind of vendetta against this woman known as the Huntress that they're hunting down. And then the third story involves this woman from her story of growing up at the literal edge of the world in rural Siberia and working her way into being a pilot in the, the 30s and eventually joining the, the Red Army as a as a bomber pilot in an actual real combat unit. They were called the Night Witches. And it was the only all-female combat unit in the war. And it was also one of the most decorated units in the war. And slowly these three stories become more and more interconnected and before eventually colliding. Now you can you have a sense of where it's going, but just how it's all going to wrap up it leads to such a wonderfully dramatic conclusion and I won't spoil it, but you know, with books like this, there's obviously going to be a, a hit of romance and the romance here works. I think it fits a lot better than it did in the Alice network. There's a, a wonderful queer love story that's in it that, that plays out in a, in a very tender way, but also a very heartbreaking way because not only is it, you know, love in the time of war, but these women are also having a physical relationship with each other in Stalin's in Stalin's Russia, you know, in the middle of World War II, which that's not going to work out well. It's not going to work out now to be gay in Russia. And it it comes together so satisfyingly. And you feel like a a real a real sense I fuck, I can't spoil it. This book's too new. Anyway, the Huntress by Kate Quinn. I definitely check it out. Yeah, I, I don't want to give away too much because there's some wonderful surprises and some wonderful twists. And because we're she's overlapping these time periods, we'll know a piece of information before a character will. So there's that wonderful sense of horrid anticipation because we now have an integral piece of info that a character doesn't. So we're watching them walk into these situations and it's just this, no, don't do it. It's like you're shouting at the book or when you're shouting at a movie screen, it, it's exactly like that. And we get a nice little cameo from uh, Eve Gardner or Eve Gardner, whatever her name is girl with the man, woman with the mangled hands from the Alice network. 
has a nice little a little walk-in, walk-out cameo in this. And I'm reading it, and he refers to the woman he's sitting with with the mangled hands. I'm like, no fucking way. So that's just a nice little a nice little tie-in. She was the best part of the Alice Network, that character. So it was fun to see her pop up here. So definitely check it out. Kate Quinn's The Huntress. Recommendations. Stay on message. Uh, Dolls by Stuart Gordon. Excellently fun film. And a film that a lot of people probably don't know that the guy that made Reanimator was involved in. But Honey, I Shrunk the Kids. He did not direct it, but Stuart Gordon, Brian Yuzna, and I believe Dennis Piole, they wrote the original script and treatment for Honey, I Shrunk the Kids before they sold it to the studio. And they all have story credit on the film. So that to me is was delightful to see their names there because I watched the shit out of Honey, I Shrunk the Kids. And I had no idea, absolutely no idea that the guys who made Reanimator were involved with it. But once you know about it and you know about, you know, their their fun history, like their love of horror and old monster movies and stuff, Honey, I Shrunk the Kids is an old school monster movie just with kind of a bouncy Disney Warner Brothers, you know, 80 sensibility to it. You know, it's it's a horror movie turned into a kid's movie. So it makes total sense. Uh, as for books, not really connected to any of this, but I read uh, Irma Voth by Miriam Toes, and I've read two of her other books, uh, Complicated Kindness and Summer of My Amazing Luck. This one is is excellent. It involves a, a young Mennonite woman who's living in, if not in Mexico, because I guess a bunch of Mennonites fled and went to Mexico years ago, and this a horrible world she's having to deal with of isolation and religious extremism with her family. And she gets involved with this film crew that shows up to, to shoot a movie about Mennonites in her area and kind of how it expands her horizons as to what her life could be, what her life could be outside the confines of this place. So absolutely excellent book you're you're happy you're sad you're laughing it's the three books of hers i've read i just cannot wait to devour the rest of her of her books so excellent that brings us to the end i'll try and make the end of this here quick get us out under the two hour mark uh, because i still have to cut this dang thing but i want to thank you guys very much for sticking with me Uh, as for what's coming on friday for my next episode I'm honestly not sure. Uh, thus far, I've promised Tombstone and Dog Soldiers as the next uh, the next films. Uh, I might do both. Uh, I might have some kind of theme for April because it is Easter, so that is the month of resurrection, which means zombies. So it might be zombie stuff all all month. I don't know. My uh, my outline has uh, has kind of got it gotten away from me because I've been mixing stuff up here the last little while, but. It'll be a surprise for you, because right now, it's a surprise for me. I don't know what's coming. But until then, you can find me on Facebook at Steal My Name Cast. You can find me on SoundCloud at the Steal My Name Podcast. Please uh, like, share, uh, follow, whatever, all the different things. Subscribe, all the different internet stuff that people do. Uh, I know you guys have been listening, and I really appreciate that. I know times are tough right now for a lot of people. So hopefully listening to me do a little talking and yakking uh, helps get you through some of these moments. So once again, thank you. And until next time, remember to steal someone else's name because this one is already taken.